So I've driven past a few houses now that already have Christmas decorations up. Uh, some of you are delighted that I said that. Some of you had this horrible grimace on your face when I said that. It's not time for that yet. It does remind me that it's time for a personal tradition that I have. Uh, it's been well over 20 years now uh, since I first read during this season Dickens' A Christmas Carol, and I read it every year. And so, I don't know, it's year 22 or 23. Again, some of you are delighted in that. Some of you have a grimace on your face right now. Why would you reread something? That's silly. But the reason that I read it and read it and read it every year is honestly... It's a story of hope. See, I think Scrooge gets a really bad rap because you remember Scrooge for all the bad things that he does and for the evil man that he is. But that is the entire opposite of the point of the story. Entire opposite. The story is meant to beautifully bring us to a point to say, how much am I like this guy? Maybe not in a lack of generosity or that you have wealth and you don't desire to, to share it, but maybe in a series of other ways. How can I have had experiences and given myself license to be other than that which I probably should be? And if I were to have the opportunity to be a different man, be a different woman, if I could be someone more, if I could do the things that I really wanted to do that I think would be virtuous, how would I have hoped to see that actually happen? And in the most unthinkable place, in the most unthinkable life, it happens. The most Christmas-oriented person who most fully embraces the spirit of Christmas in the entire novel is Scrooge. That's the exclamation point. And so Scrooge gets a bad rap. So I'm here today as an apologist to say, stop doing that to Scrooge. That is the man that he was. Fictional, though he may be, but it's not the man that he is. And so when, when Gary's final call last week as he preached so passionately from Isaiah 42 was ask the Lord that he might give us a spirit of sacrificial generosity. I thought, I read A Christmas Carol because Scrooge is an example to me to, to be different and actually have hope that I can be different. So if we are pleading with the Lord, if we're asking him to give us a spirit of sacrificial generosity, which is a matter of personal confession, I don't have consistently. I don't have most of the time. Is there a place we can look for an example that we might find hope? And not just as I found in my own heart last week a sense of foreboding guilt and this hesitation to go, Lord, I want to ask you for this, but... Is this really going to happen? Is this going to be indicative of who I am? Is this going to be indicative of our church as we think about the Lottie Moon offering, as we think about just who we are as men and women in union with Jesus? And so there, there's a text that I do think gives us an example of people that actually found hope in displaying sacrificial generosity. So I, I think there's an example of a group of people, a church, that displays gospel generosity. But I think this text also shows us an example that calls us to display gospel generosity. So if you're looking for your two points, I'm not elaborate. That's all you got, all right? A an example that displays gospel generosity and an example that calls us to display 
gospel generosity. The first point we'll look at verses 1 through 4 of 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 9. The, the second point we'll look at verses 5 through 9, and I know we're going to stop in the middle of a paragraph, but I assume we want to go to lunch at some point. So that's why we're going to stop in the middle of a paragraph. And I hope to draw our attention all the way through verse 15, but we won't be able to cover that much. And so let me read the text for us, and then we'll pray together that the Lord would, would grant us a spirit of sacrificial generosity, uh, even as he guides us by his spirit through his word. And so 2 Corinthians 8, I'll begin at verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. God, we would pray that you would grant us the providential opportunity of this season that comes every year. The opportunity that we have to give particularly to the spread of the gospel around the world during this season. The opportunity that we have particularly to show generosity to those in our families and our neighbors and those in our immediate community. God, we pray that you would make us aware in this season and grant us by your work a spirit that would mark us well beyond this season. God, we pray that you would do this because we believe that it would please you. We believe it's in keeping with your desire, and we believe, Lord, that it would display the joy that is you at work in us. God, may me be marked by joy this season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul obviously brings up to the Corinthians in a second letter the idea that these Macedonian believers have been very generous. That's clear. But the occasion for this, what he's referencing, he's already talked about. And thankfully, Pastor Chase has been so faithful to work us through Romans. In Romans 15, he describes the situation. It's this giving to the Jerusalem believers. And he even mentions the Macedonians in Romans 15. In the first letter that we have, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4, he mentions the same instance. That these Jerusalemites, these, these believers in Jerusalem are impoverished. That is because of persecution. It's also because of overpopulation. It's because of a series of economic factors that have them well below the poverty line. And so he's calling on churches in and around the region 
to display generosity to support them because they have life-threatening needs. And so he calls on the church in Corinth to actually demonstrate that they want to give. And they pledged roughly a year earlier to do just that. But it's come time to put up or shut up. And they're waffling a little bit. Okay, are we, are we really going to give this full amount? Or are we certain of what we're giving toward? Is this worth it in essence? Is part of what they're wrestling and struggling through. And so if you were like me, where even a call from a faithful pastor in our local church brings both a desire to obey and a desire not to wander, although I feel the temptation to wander away from it, would you pray that you have this spirit of generosity? I need somebody to be an example for me to show, how do you work through the waffling? How do you actually have God put some steel in your spine to display some dedication in a way that honors and brings glory to his name and actually grows out of a heart of joy, not obligation. And so Paul wants that for the church at Corinth, and he's seen that in the churches in Macedonia. And so he's going to talk about this example that the Macedonians have set, but it's, it's really striking. The way he talks about wealth and generosity and poverty is not the way we commonly think about it. And he couches it all in this idea of the grace of God given among the churches in Macedonia, which he says in verse 1. It's important to recognize that his favorite word throughout chapters 8 and 9 is grace. It occurs repetitively throughout these two chapters, which I would argue are the most significant single expression of what it means to give as Christian people for our understanding of that. Well, he soaks it frames it, and pushes it toward us, all dripping with grace. Grace is used repetitively, but in different ways. So in the ways that he uses it, he means everything from grace is the ability that God gives to you to function and operate. He's sustaining grace. He means an actual monetary gift. This, this grace that the Macedonians had given. He refers to that as grace. He means the privilege or the honor that we or they have to give. That is a grace. That's grace to do that. So I mention that because grace sometimes is just God's disposition. He is gracious, yes. But his disposition changes everything. It frames everything in his movement, his activity, his determination to be gracious to those who were his enemies and to make them sons and daughters. And because of that, when he calls on them to give or when that gift is actually given, all of that is called grace or evidence of grace. And so the question for me is, if, if this grace of giving is an example to us, and it is, it displays gospel generosity, what is it? Like, what did they do exactly? And he elaborates pretty significantly. He says, verse 2, in a severe test of affliction, two things occurred or converged. And the oil is their abundance of joy and the water is their extreme poverty. Right? Those two things can't mix. They don't go together unless you want the cake to fall or never even attempt to rise. Right? If the recipe that we're trying to cook for Thanksgiving is something that's savory or sweet 
or covered in gravy, even if it's a dessert. Like, I don't even mind that, okay? Whatever it is, you don't put two ingredients together that just don't go together and can't blend. So, Paul, why in the world are you talking about this severe test of affliction the Macedonians were enduring? The people that gave, and he's calling this this grace of giving. Why would you say not only are they in a severe test of affliction, but that they were abundant in joy, and they expressed this, they demonstrated it. But they're abundant in joy in extreme poverty. By the way, the phrase he uses, extreme poverty, Poverty, just picture whatever conversations you and I have about people brushing up against or touching or, or starting to cross the poverty line. They had obliterated the poverty line. They are starving to death themselves in some instances. They are persecuted to the point of being cut off from family members and viable vocation to earn a living. They are themselves Drowning in extreme poverty, yet with an abundance of joy. Those two streams come together somehow in unthinkable fashion to do what? To overflow in a wealth of generosity. Not to overflow in wealth. Let's make no mistake about that. Remember, they're drowning under extreme poverty. It doesn't overflow in that they are able to give six figures away because they make seven or eight. This is a wealth of generosity. Measured rightly by what they have means to do. By how they express it out of the joy of their heart. As Paul will say, the Lord loves a cheerful giver in chapter 9. This is rising from something that is supernatural. This is not their own ability to be virtuous and altruistic and go, well, these people are suffering, so out of the goodness of my own heart and resources, I ought to do something about it because we're struggling too. They certainly saw that, and there's nothing wrong with seeing that and wanting to counter it. Matter of fact, I do think that's an evidence of the Lord's mercy to us that even unregenerate people, people that don't know Jesus, that they want to do something for other people. And actually, they, they come against poverty, and they come against injustice, and they, they come against any measure of evils that might hold people down. That's not what he's describing here. He's describing the work of the Lord in this grace of giving, and that in the midst of extreme poverty, that shows the backdrop, so that what can shine brilliantly is an abundance of joy. And through that conduit, this overflowing wealth of generosity comes. They actually give probably more than they should. And Paul as much as says that here in just a moment. This overflow of generosity is wealth in that they, they gave willingly, verse 3, of their own accord or willingly. Your translation probably says some variety of that. This was not under compulsion or constraint. No government official marched into their homes and said, you will do this now. That wouldn't be nearly as beautiful. As a matter of fact, it might not even have a tinge of beauty left in it if that were to happen. Instead, willfully, because they were abounding in joy found in Christ, even in the midst of drowning in poverty, they overflowed rather than succumbed 
they actually gave in generosity in this wealth expressed. So how did they give? What does this willingness look like? He says they gave according to their means. They, they did what you and I do, right? We look at a need and we go, I, I want to engage that. I want to care for those people. I, I want to be able to be an assistant, a servant to them in that. I, you know, you can't get blood out of a turnip. This is what I got. I want to be able to give. They did that. They looked at what they were able to do, although meager, it likely was. And they gave it. The, the shocking part is what he adds after that. They also gave beyond their means. They, they sacrificially went beyond what probably they should have done. Now, Paul, this seems pretty reckless. It, it definitely doesn't seem to fit financial counsel that we get often. To go beyond what you should do, to take from this budget line, to, to give to these people, like, is that wise? Or is it foolish? He seems to commend it. He doesn't make it normative, like it happens every second of every day, but he, he definitely doesn't call it bad. So what are we to do with that? Are they reckless? Are, are, are they foolish to do this? And when I read this text, I, I'm drawn to recall, and I, I would call us to remember Luke's account in Luke 21. You, you remember that the beef that Jesus had under the weight of what he saw is that the scribes and the religious leaders had all of this pretense around what they did and what they executed. And part of what they did around financial norms is what he called devouring widows' houses. Right? They, they would subsume and, and take hold of what was there because they wanted to prop up their own income and gain. It's right after that accusation that this familiar story is told. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put into small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. He, he doesn't decry her. He doesn't call her fiscally insensible. He says, look at this beautiful thing that she's done. Should she do it all the time? He doesn't say that. Has she done something that is appropriate and good and striking and compelling without question? They have done like she did, the Macedonians. They have out of their poverty, it's even the same phrase, that they've, they've given beyond their means. Well, what brings you to that point? If, if we're going to say we want sacrificial generosity, I'm not saying that's the only vehicle that rides in. But that's sacrificial. And so for me, sometimes I'll let myself off the hook. Sacrificial generosity means I'll forego another cup of coffee this month. I mean, no offense, Shane, give me a stinking break. Don't, don't call that sacrifice. Don't. I, I'm pointing at myself. For those of you watching online, you see that. For those of you listening later, I'm literally doing that right now. Because, because I, I need the Lord, by the work of His Spirit, to stamp that out of me. 
It's not sacrifice. So it may not look exactly like the Macedonians or the widow's offering, but these are pictures of sacrifice, clearly. So something toward this is what we mean by sacrificial generosity. It can take a number of expressions and forms depending on individual lives. I'm, I'm not saying it looks exactly like this all the time. But these are examples that I think we'd benefit from. And I, I really tried to think through, what, what does she do? And then looking back at our text, what did the Macedonians do that would make Paul realize they gave according to what was reasonable or could be assumed this is appropriate, and they gave beyond their means? Like, what, what process do you go through? What does he seem to allude to or intimate? And so here's a few thoughts. They obviously had an opportunity to take action, the same opportunity that the Corinthians have, right? There is a presenting issue. You can be generous here. So they, they have to consider, am I going to do this or not, right? And that's right. You should consider. You can't give to everything, right? So, so they had to do that. They considered what they could do in light of their financial and life situation, which, again, it is wise. What can we do? And naturally, what we can do now and what we choose to do will affect your future situation. I think that's their next consideration. How is this going to affect our future? I mean, in the widow's example, what has she done? She gave out of her poverty all she had to live on. I mean, I don't think she needed a financial advisor to figure out what her future was to look like. You have no future. You're a widow. You have very meager means to begin with, and you just gave it all away. What does her future look like? What are her prospects? What can she discern to be anything that's coming for her that would be good or hopeful? And yet, she gives it anyway. She gives it, in that text at least, clearly because she, she thinks it, it's honoring to the Lord. Like, it's, it's what she should do. And the Macedonians seem to think, because again, they're... They're submitted to the will of the Lord. Paul makes a point to say that. And to the teaching of the apostles who have submitted themselves in their leadership to the will of the Lord. Because they're doing that, what do they do? They consider all those things I just mentioned. And they decide to do it anyway. It doesn't mean that ramifications weren't felt. It didn't mean that they had to regroup and, and retrain themselves to figure out, okay, well, how are we going to make ends meet now? Or how are we going to be more creative about making ends meet? Because while we figure out how to justify excessive ends being made to meet, there's people dying. So at some point in time, we got to come to terms with that and go, what is our respective role in that? And in particular, in this occasion, in this sense, they had an ongoing notion, because Paul's very clear in all of his epistles to outline it, that the gospel is now going to Gentile people like them, people that aren't Jewish. And the gospel is still going out in and through those Jews who are coming to faith in Jesus and those believing people in Jerusalem. So for them, they didn't disconnect the notion of giving to brothers and sisters imperiled and the ability for those brothers and sisters to still declare the gospel to the people around them Instead of having to worry about where every single meal was going to come, maybe they could just worry about where every fourth or fifth or sixth one was going to come from. They didn't disconnect those two things. 
And so he's pointing to the Macedonian believers to say, Corinthians, I know that this is hard for you. He actually doesn't chastise them. He just says, consider the Macedonians. They, they're, and intentionally so, they're in more extreme poverty than any of you are, especially as a group there in Corinth. Given that that's the fact, that consider what they've done. Consider that they've given according to their means and even beyond their means. And I think he sets up that example in part because he really means to say, okay, now you, you need to fulfill what you've said you're going to do. You, you need to take the ball all the way across the goal line, and I know that you just want to drop back and punt right now. I, I see it. I hear it. Titus has communicated that, that you're on the fence. And so I, I'm trying to help you see that there are other brothers and sisters that have committed to do the very thing that you're scared to do. Or at worst, just unwilling to do. And I'm giving you that example so that he ultimately, I think, can go on in verses 5 through 9, even all the way through 15. But we'll look at 5 through 9 and give an example of this display of generosity. It really is a call to us to display gospel generosity. He, he actually moves from the Macedonian example, although he's still engaging the Corinthians around that. And he talks about in verse 5, their generosity was surprising because they not only acted in submission to God, given their extreme poverty, but, but in the leadership of the apostles. I mentioned that a moment ago. In verse 6, he says he sent Titus back with this letter, okay, the one we're looking at. Because of his clear affection for the Corinthians, we think, he was just recently or more recently there with them. And apparently Titus was encouraged he was stirred in his affections. He brought back the report that they actually had followed through, we think. It seems to be that they followed through on actually moving toward the sin that was in their own congregation and trying to establish, like, the, the Lord means to undo this. We can't allow this to go. So Titus is very encouraged by that. He spent the time with them. It, it seems like over that year or so, in between the time they said they're going to do it, and now when they're not sure they're going to do it, that he was the main one not only to deliver the message, but to actually try to keep the pot warm, right? He's kept the burner on the go. Okay, this is coming, this is coming. And it seems like, seems like based on what Paul is saying, that like some of us, you put it on the calendar like four months from now, and you're like, that's a great idea. That's, a, that's, a great, that's an ambitious goal, but I think I can get there. And then it's 11.59 the night before, and it's got to happen at 7 a.m. And why am I such a nimrod, right? Uh, why do I do these things to myself? That's what you're thinking at that point. Well, there's a little bit of that at work in them, too. And so he sends Titus back with this letter because Titus has tried to encourage them to persevere, it appears. And he's now going to be the one to be the mouthpiece and the, the messenger to say, you got to do this. You, your brothers and sisters are suffering the, the, the prospects of at least a declaration of the gospel in, in this region and through the means God's choosing to use. Like They're threatened in some sense. Even though we know that God's faithful to achieve what he promises to achieve, that's, that's the times they were living in. Is this going to go forward or is it not? And so given that, he, he sends them back to do that. But when you get to verse 7, he actually appeals to them and says, Listen, I'm not grounding my call to you in thin air. I, I'm actually saying based on who you are. Who the Lord's made you to be by His grace and initiative, which He's covered extensively. 
Like, I'm so hopeful because I see who you are. This isn't a browbeating session from Paul. This isn't, you're such a scumbag. Why don't you just get off your money, you skin flint? Like, that's, that's not what he's doing. He's actually saying evidence of God's work by his grace is clear in the Macedonians. It's clear in you too. But there's something that you have to do right now that's in keeping with the Spirit's work and your union with Christ. And I know you don't want to do it, but I'm imploring you to consider doing it. He's going to make a point to say, I'm, I'm not commanding this of you. But he's getting as close as he can to that, right? I mean, He's not commanding that of them. But he's trying to put the manifold glories of the gospel in front of them to say, would this not compel you to do what you've committed to do? And so what does he say about them? What, what is it exactly that he sees in them? He makes the point to say, I, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Well, why would their love be genuine? Well, because in verse 7, he's already, in essence, commended them for it. He says, but as you excel in everything, and he mentions, what, well, what do you mean, Paul? In faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. They excelled in faith. Paul's not looking at them and saying, you are faithless, even given the nature of his first letter, and that there was a lot of hard words that had to be sent their way. Well, the intention in that was that they would persevere. Not that they'd languish and move away from the gospel. And so he commends them that they are trusting in Christ actively. They are looking to him to lead and shepherd and guide them. He doesn't question that. He actually commends them that they are excelling in this by the Lord's grace. In speech, in doctrine, in clear teaching. And actually communicating the truth for the good of the body of Christ. You're not just half-heartedly doing it. You're excelling in this. What else are they excelling in? In knowledge. In theological understanding. I think here even application. Knowledge has an application component. And they, they knew doctrine. They spoke it and they applied it to their lives. They sought to actually say, how is the teaching of this book? Informing who we are from micro to macro decisions. How is it truly as the person of God is working in and through us? They sought to do that, not just a little bit. He says, you're excelling in this. And I want to commend you for that. In earnestness. And they're diligent. They're passionate. They have zeal. They're energetic. It's okay to be energetic, right? It's, it's okay to actually love the Lord and express that joy. They did that. They didn't just do it sometimes when it was convenient. Or when they had an uptick or, or they got something that was positive, I, I think they had some bitter things that were happening too. And what did they do? And they were earnest. They were joyful. They were honest and sincere and they expressed that and wanted to follow Christ. And he even says in love. It seems like he predominantly means the love shared by those who are in Christ together. But I, I say that in part because of the language that he uses. But they're excelling in love. The challenge is, even though they're excelling in all these things, and all of these things are meant to impact everywhere that they go, anywhere they inhabit, they pretty much just inhabited Corinth. And they inhabited life 
with each other. So I do think part of what Paul is pointing out here is you are excelling in all of these things, but almost all of these things in the way you are expressing them right now, at least, they're all central and local. They're among yourselves, basically. So you are excelling in these things, and it's not bad. They, they are true excellencies. The Lord's grace is evident in this. But now that you have to turn your attention to the needs of how these same excellencies might be demonstrated somewhere else, in another body, in another geography, you're not sure if that is on the same level of importance at the end of the day. So that's not all that he means to say. I'll try to draw that out here in a second, but I think that is part of what he's getting at. You, yourself, for the sake of yourself, and even as you reach out, you, you are displaying excellency in this. You're excelling at it. Overflow. It needs to overflow. It needs to go out, too. It doesn't just need to be celebrated among you. And so, he actually, I think, points to that not only in the overflowing imagery that he uses when he says that you, you should abound in this gracious work, in other words, this giving opportunity you have, he uses the overflow imagery, but he also is talking about something that's going to impact somewhere that some of you are never going to see. You're never going to go there. You're never going to meet these people. Excel in this too. Excel in this too. And so the obvious question, I think, when we're trying to be theologically faithful is, is it okay for Paul to put that in the list with the others? I mean, he seems to put it on, on equal footing. And I don't mean qualitatively that everything's exactly equal there in the list. But, I mean, Paul, you're going to put this gift for these people on par with theology the grace of God in soteriology or saving us and putting us in union with Christ. Like you're putting this gift on par with that. Like we're supposed to consider it in that list. Is that fair of you, Paul? Are you trying to manipulate us? Shane, are you trying to manipulate us by bringing this up right now? I mean, you know, you start to have those thoughts if you're honest with yourself. Does this really belong there? Because that's the way he structured what he's saying. You've done all these things, excelled in all these things. This also, it lacks here. You need to do this, too, because it should be there with the rest of them. Let's rewind the tape for just a minute. He, he really, verse 8 through 15, he really is trying to say, I know there's going to be some objections to this. So he's trying to deal with them. But let me just walk you back through 7, and then we'll get to 8 and 9. If they excel in faith, I think he means for them to understand you display faith. In part, he means this. You display faith because Jesus took on flesh and was faithful to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that he could secure that faith. You could, you could actually trust in him. God the Father did not spare his son. But he gave him so that he might be seen as unquestionably trustworthy. That he might be the commander of our souls because no one else could actually purchase them. But he did it in faithfulness. They excel in faith because that's true. They excel in, in doctrine. They, they know, they teach, they apply the truth because Jesus took on flesh. We celebrate at Christmas. And he emphatically says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no person anywhere on this planet in any generation can come to the Father by any other means than by faith in Christ. 
they excel because that's truth. They excel in knowledge because the knowledge of Christ is there in the midst of the gospel. The knowledge of God in union with Christ is offered to us. They excel in earnestness. They joyfully pursue Christ who took on flesh because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Why would we be joyful, people? Why would we make joy full? As both Paul speaks about and Jesus himself talks about, because Christ is our joy. What compelled him in his incarnation, his taking on flesh and his sacrifice on the cross, his entire coming to rescue us and establish ultimately the new heaven and new earth, that all those might dwell together with him. We hope for that. Now, what compelled him to do it? It wasn't drudgery. It wasn't a sense of obligation. It was for the joy set before him. He endured these things. They excel in love by loving one another because the Father sent his Son into the world to demonstrate his own love for us in this that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The worst brand of enemy to God. Not someone who knew the man upstairs. Someone who was absolutely opposed to him in everything that he is. God sent his son to love those people. the poorest of the poor, you might say. With nothing to bring, nothing to barter with, nothing to strike a deal with before God, just enemies, sinners, needy, beggars, who had the reality of Christ made known to them because of his grace and his mercy, and now know him and love him. That's why they excelled in all these things. So then when he gets to verse 9 and says this, it makes a lot of sense. You should excel in generosity because for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. The only way that they will excel in this grace of giving, the only way you and I would excel in this grace of giving or get off the fence or whatever we need, we're all different people, right? Whatever we need in this moment, the only way that's going to happen is because Jesus, who was rich in glory, bound himself in agreement with the Father to come and take on flesh, fully God, fully man, to live among us who are in the flesh. And he did that, becoming poor, giving up the rightful honor that he should have gained by his creation to both have derision on the part of them. They, they made fun of him, they mocked him, they scorned him, they crucified him. And to secure hope in him, glory, eternal life for them. As they believe and hope in him. Both things occurred ultimately. 
those things continue to occur all over this planet. People refuse in stiff-necked fashion to recognize that Jesus is the only one who can grant you life with God. He is the only one who will make sense of all of your pursuits of happiness because he is himself joy and happiness. And there are those that say, I don't want that. Those that say, I don't want to look on that. I don't want you to say another word about that. And there are some that have never heard a word about that. And no one who lives in their village or in their section of the city, or in some cases the entire city on the whole, have ever heard a word about that. So they're not refusing it. They just, they don't know that it, the gospel, Jesus himself, has even come to the earth. And there are those that have been reached by that news, and they live next door to you. And, and you've been the vehicle to do that. By the Spirit's work, to the glory of God, that's happened. And there are people across this planet that people sent out from this church have been the vehicle for the Lord to bring that good news, to communicate that truth, to call people to faith in Jesus, and it's happened. And there are many more of those stories that God will continue to tell as he continues to bring people to know him by grace through faith in Jesus. But that's only possible because Jesus became poor. So that through his suffering, through his taking on flesh, his dying on the cross, his resurrection and ascension and his promised return, through all of those means, he will receive glory. He, he is receiving glory. It is absolutely certain and assured. And what he is saying to us is there, there is no crown without a cross. There is no glory that you will see without even your own suffering. And part of the means that he has used historically through every generation of believing people throughout the entirety of the history of the church is through the kind provinces and joyful celebration, laughter, smiles, and through the weeping martyrdom of believing men and women and even children He's achieved, he's achieved what would glorify him in the gospel going forward. Through all of that, he's done it. This excelling in giving for them and for us, it's, it's not just about the gift. It is about the gift that Jesus himself is to us. And understanding that rightly, and by the Spirit's work, responding in an overflow of generosity. When you think about the season, and I, I very intentionally tried to get in front of Black Friday. I, I didn't realize I was going to be preaching at this point until far too late. I did. It's not on Chase. It's on me. Like, I penciled it. It's like that thing, right? Four or five months. I'm like, yeah, I'll do that. Oh, no, it's here. Uh, but I, I did recognize in the calendar year I'm in front of Black Friday. And Black Friday is a weird thing. I hate Black Friday. And so the other day, um, I'm checking social media, which I try not to do, but I've been checking it more lately because... Um, Anyway, total side note, but my cousin is an incredible graphic designer, and he actually is an art director for a firm that does digital billboards, and so he's won all kinds of national awards. Well, he's putting them up left and right right now, so he's like, I got it posted, so I'm going on there. And say, anyway, so I go on there the other day, and there's a video, and here's what it's called, How to Win at Black Friday. I was like, I don't want to play Black Friday, but I am terribly competitive, so now I want to win. I mean, I'm going to win now. 
I don't even know what that means, but I'm going to win, right? Because I want to win. Because, I, again, almost to a sinful level, my wife made it. No, it's sinful. It's sinful. I want to I win. I'm competitive, all right? So, nevertheless, I, I, I really don't want to play. I'm not saying that's bad if you want to save money, but just for a moment, for a moment, consider with me. This isn't about Black Friday. If you go out, I'll celebrate whatever purchases you post on Twitter or Facebook. Okay, It's cool, all right? But... Just consider for a moment how the season, as it, it is to us now, because we need to live in this day and love our neighbor in this day and care for our family in this day, okay? I love church history, but we're a part of it right now, okay? So it needs to inform us, but we, I, you can't, you don't have the DeLorean, you can't go back, all right? So given that that's the truth, how, how is it the case, how is it the case that maybe we just take for granted, Right? How to win at Black Friday? I, well, yeah, because you got to play. That's just what you do. Because we're being wise, right? We're saving money. Like we're, yeah, probably not. You probably spend more money, actually, overall, because you think you're saving money. In most instances, not everybody, but that happens, right? How is it, for example, that the season itself is filled with joy without any caution that to consider that it's not filled with joy? For your neighbors, for your family members, some of you will have to deal with Christmas for the first time, having lost a loved one. You'll have to deal with, with Christmas and Thanksgiving for the first time away from your family. Either because of death or relocation, whatever it is. You have to deal with the fact that you have a diagnosis you haven't even told anybody else about yet. And you, you know you got to tell them, and what do you do with that during the holidays? Like You don't want to ruin anyone's holiday, but your, your life has been ruined by it, you feel like. But what do you do with that, and how do we understand in light of that? that there, there is the joy of the season, but it is a joy that can stitch its way through everything I've just said and so much more that I don't know about you. I don't know you're enduring. I don't know what you're having to walk through. But that joy can be there because that joy is rooted in Christ if you would hope in Him and believe in Him. That joy doesn't dissipate or go away. We might lose sight of it. It might not look as bright and lustery as we'd like for it to sometime. And so the Spirit has to call us back, to come back, to, to be satisfied in Jesus and recognize that we are. That's got to happen. But it, there's another dark side to Christmas that I think we lose. And I love the fact that, that Linus actually recites Luke 2 in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. I love that. I, ah, I just wish it hadn't come out in 1965. Because the, the KJV, I'm not down on the whole translation, okay, but they, they left out a phrase that, that I think brings the sobering note that Christmas deserves. That as we're overjoyed by this scene, there's a final phrase that we have to put alongside of everything that we're celebrating. So, so here's the text. I won't read the whole thing, okay? Just 8 through 14 of Luke 2. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly... There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among, this is the phrase that's not there, but, but it is there. 
those with whom he is pleased. So all of that joy, all of that adulation, all that celebration, this eternal hope is only for those with whom he's pleased. But who is he pleased with? Well, at Jesus' coronating event, his baptism, this, this is my beloved son in whom I am absolutely well pleased. He, he is pleased with those who are found by faith in Jesus. So for the population around this world and the population that lives in your neighborhood that don't know Christ, whatever we have to do to excel in giving. Corporately, that's one thing. Individually, that's all kinds of different things. I don't, I don't know what that is for us individually. That can't be disconnected from this spirit of celebration that shouldn't be hindered because this should be part of our celebration. Making more people know the truth of Christ, hopeful that He will rescue men and women and children, grant them faith, that the Lord would do that work. That's, that's part of the season. When you consider that, you know, a little over 3 billion people, 41% of the planet, are among unreached peoples, it's not as if it's a minor need. I think $160 million is a, a great and ambitious goal. And I think our 20000 is great. And know that it takes that every year, if not more, to do what just we have to do among our churches. Not, nothing said of the brothers and sisters in other denominations, in other efforts that we partner with and at least encourage and support because they're in the faith. To say nothing of what it takes to help them and assist them and, and place people. That there might be someone there to say, the Lord, the Lord is pleased with you. God is pleased with you because he's pleased with his son because you put faith in him. Christmas, the spirit of Christmas is rooted there. And so what could we do? I've been in the mind of Thomas Brooks a lot lately. That's a scary place to go. He was a Puritan. But he, he makes the point pretty directly that you don't make some application as a preacher uh, and just realize something. If the coat's not fit for anybody or fit for everybody, it's not fit for anybody. His point is that if you just say, hey, go apply this, that's not going to be adequate. So some of this will matter to you, some of it won't. I'll go through it very quickly. And then I want to bring our attention back, I think, to a, a way that will helpfully guide us in this season. I would say based on our reading from earlier in the sermon, be generous by investing your money where you want your heart to be. It's actually what Matthew 6 teaches us. Is that if you want your heart to be somewhere, if you want your affections to be stirred for the gospel going forward, then, then put some skin in the game. Like that, that is warranted that we would actually give toward those things. We, we can be cold or indifferent because we want to grow in that. We want the Lord to use that as a means to do that. So, so find a way to do that no matter what the vehicle is. Second, be generous by intentionally thinking through what you'll forego this holiday season. I, I mentioned before Black Friday, I said it a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I actually don't mean it. Like, if you don't make a plan now, you just regret the credit card bill later, right? I mean, that's true in general at Christmas time, but especially if you're saying, I not only want to still give my kids gifts, by the way, my kids, you're still getting gifts, all right? Nobody's taking your gifts away, all right? No, all the kids are like in tears right now. No, you're not going to take your kids' gifts away. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but if you, if you don't make a plan right now, 
you'll spend in ways that you, you don't mean to or, or wish you hadn't, right? So how are you going to plan now to actually help and assist and give yourself the ability to give toward things like Lottie Moon, Christmas offering? Be generous to your friends, your family, your church, your neighbors, your people in your own households, and be generous toward the world. And doing whatever you intended to do last year, but you haven't done I do think the incidental note here is helpful. The Corinthians have every intention of doing it. But then when it comes time to do it, they're like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm fickle. I don't, maybe you're not. Maybe you are stalwart and true and steady as she goes, and you'll never turn back. I'm fickle. So I might have said I was going to give something. At the end of the day, even if I still got the means, I'm probably not. I could shave a little bit off that. I think uh, that could be justified in some way. My encouragement to you is push it all the way forward. Do whatever it is that you wish you had done last year and you committed to as of January 1, and now it's time. Like, let, let's do it. Let's find a way to help each other at least get closer to it, even if you can't do all of that. All right? And I think Lottie Moon would be an example. I hear lots of conversations after Christmas of next year. All right, it's time. Uh, okay, so the fourth thing that I would say to you is be generous and recognize the grace of the Lord making this possible. And celebrate the joy that it is to make Yourself get by with less so that others can live forever with immeasurably more. That, that's really the intention on any, and I hope you realize this, any offering that we have is a special offering. That's just another providential opportunity to weigh all these things and say, God, how might you change who I am a bit through this means that I have in front of me? Without an opportunity, you don't get a chance to act. But that's, this is the most recent opportunity that you have. And because we've talked about Lottie Moon and I don't want to say much more about her, but I do want to end with a little brushstroke from her because I think she was someone who was trying to wrestle with the implications of what's here. And I actually mean what's here in the passage we just talked about. I'm so grateful to Linda to giving us a, a bio and kind of talking us through and, and even Gary in his prayer saying that there's others that are laboring. They, they may not have the notoriety that she does. We remember her name. We don't remember others. But at the end of the day, she, she struggled when she was there on the field in China to go, how, how does home relate to me here? How do I start to work toward that? What does it look like? And so I, I just want to mention what she wrote in her letter, and this will be our opportunity to close. The band can come up. She actually writes this in that September 15th letter that becomes the final push toward the Christmas offering. Why should... We not learn from these noble Methodist women. She sees all these Methodist women, and they're taking up an offering, and they're giving more. And so she's not trying to compete like I am. She's just trying to say, how should we invest more? And instead of the paltry offerings we make, do something that will prove that we are really in earnest in claiming to be followers of him, who, though he was rich for our sake, became poor. She says, is not the festive season when families and friends exchange gifts in memory of the gift laid on the altar of the world for the redemption of the human race, the most appropriate time to consecrate a portion from abounding riches and scant poverty to send forth the good tidings of great joy into all the earth. Pray the Lord would give us that spirit of generosity, sacrificial generosity. I pray he'd give us the occasion of this offering and other occasions to display that for the sake of his glory. Let's pray.